Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of mental illness, assault, and the attempted murder of a child that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It's not uncommon for preteen girls to have their own language or made-up fantasy world. But for two 12-year-olds in Waukesha, Wisconsin, a shared belief in an urban legend turned into a dangerous delusion. It was so powerful that on Saturday, May 31st, 2014, they lured their friend into a deserted forest with every intention of killing her all to appease a tall, menacing character named Slenderman, who never existed in the first place. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes, but what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Anissa Wire and Morgan Geyser, two 12-year-old girls obsessed with an online urban legend named Slenderman, so obsessed that they were convinced he was real. After Morgan claimed he visited her in December of 2013 and demanded they prove their worthiness to him, the two girls decided to kill their friend, 12-year-old Peyton Leitner. This week, we'll delve into the vicious attack and Peyton's battle to survive. Then we'll follow Morgan and Anissa as they try to find Slenderman's mansion while authorities remain hot on their heels. During the spring of 2014, 12-year-olds Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire had taken their obsession with Slenderman to a whole new level. Not only had Slenderman apparently visited Morgan, he'd ordered that she and Anissa prove their devotion to him. So the girls decided it was time to become his servants. From what they'd read online, they knew it was the only way to protect themselves and their families. However, to do that, they needed to make a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. They decided that meant murdering their friend, 12-year-old Peyton Leitner, at Morgan's birthday sleepover. So on Saturday, May 31st, 2014, after a night of roller skating and giggling, the girls woke had donuts and strawberries, and headed to the nearby woods. They pretended to be playing hide-and-seek, trying to lure Peyton into a false sense of security. But all of a sudden, Morgan pinned Peyton to the ground and pulled out a kitchen knife. She held it above her friend's chest. A few feet away, Anissa watched intently. 
She'd been in on the plan for months and was just as determined to murder Peyton in the woods. Seeing Morgan brandishing the knife, Anissa told her to go ballistic. But Morgan still hesitated, perhaps anxious about what would happen if they didn't go through with the plan. Or perhaps just interested to see what would happen, Anissa ordered her friend, Morgan, now. It was the encouragement Morgan needed. She mumbled a hasty apology to Peyton, who struggled against her and tried to break free. Then Morgan lifted the kitchen knife and brought it down. The blade pierced Peyton's chest. Morgan stabbed her again and again and again as Peyton screamed in agony. When Morgan finally stopped, blood covered the front of her shirt. She'd stabbed Peyton a total of 19 times. But Peyton was still alive and enraged. She screamed that she hated Morgan. Somehow she managed to stand up, though she was unsteady and wobbling on her feet. Morgan and Anissa glanced at each other. They were worried someone might hear Peyton's shouting. Thinking quickly, Anissa took Peyton's arm and guided her to the ground. She told her to lay down, be quiet, and stay still so that she'd lose less blood. Then she promised that she and Morgan would be back with help. Peyton did as she was told, too terrified to fight back. But as she watched Morgan and Anissa walk away, she knew they weren't coming back. Or at least if they did, it wouldn't be to help her. As soon as the girls were out of sight, Peyton started to crawl. Every move was agonizing, but she refused to stop. She knew that finding a way out of the woods and getting help would be her only chance at survival. She finally made it to a bike path off of the main road. Normally, it would be thrumming with activity on a Saturday morning, but the path had been roped off at its street entrance. Luckily, a lone cyclist had decided to bike it anyway. When he came across Peyton lying on the side of the path and covered in blood, he rushed to her aid and asked her what happened. Then he took out his cell phone and dialed 911. The operator was so stunned, he asked the cyclist to repeat the information. A 12-year-old girl stabbed? The cyclist told him he'd heard correctly. Yes, stabbed. A few minutes later, paramedics and police descended on the path. Blood gushed from Peyton's wounds, but EMTs worked quickly to get her into the ambulance. As it sped off, police swept the surrounding area, determined to find whoever was responsible. However, Morgan and Anissa were long gone. They were already on their way to Slenderman's fabled mansion. According to the girls, his home was in Nicolay National Park, a five-hour drive and 300 miles away from Waukesha, Wisconsin. It seems hard to believe, but Anissa and Morgan planned to travel there on foot. They knew it would be a difficult journey, but it's unclear whether they knew exactly how long it would take them. Four days. And that was if they walked around the clock without a break. It didn't take long for 12-year-old Anissa to begin to unravel. 
Before we continue with Morgan and Anissa's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Anissa and Morgan had engaged in a shared delusion for months, but as Anissa walked away from the crime, the reality of what they had done began to intrude on her thoughts. They had stabbed Peyton and left her for dead. As they walked, she broke down and blamed Morgan for everything. Morgan had been the one who said Slenderman wanted them to prove themselves worthy. Morgan was the one who decided they needed to kill Peyton. Anissa had just followed Morgan's orders, too scared to disobey. In other words, Anissa was in complete denial over her part in the whole affair. According to researcher Rui Miguel Costa, denial is an immature defense mechanism common in children where a person refuses to acknowledge their reality and or their consequences. But it can be helpful for reducing stress in the short term. Denial gives the psyche time to process distressing information instead of breaking down. And that's just what Anissa was doing, attempting to cope with an extremely stressful situation. It's important to note that both girls have offered differing versions of events, so parsing the truth of this story can be difficult in places, but we'll do our best. For Morgan's part, she held fast to the delusion. She still seemed to believe that killing Peyton was the right thing to do. It had saved them and their families from Slenderman's wrath. Now, she told Anissa they had to trust that he would keep them safe and that this would all be worth it. But as the girls wandered deeper into the woods, their plan unraveled behind them. Already, police were at Peyton's house. They knocked on the door. Inside, Stacy Leitner froze. It was the type of knock that only came when something was really wrong. She knew that her daughter was still at Morgan's house, but when she opened the door and saw the police, she felt dread. When the officers said that her daughter had been stabbed, Stacy nearly collapsed. She rushed to Waukesha Memorial Hospital, where she found doctors prepping Peyton for surgery. She listened as two nurses counted her daughter's stab wounds. She had to confirm that they were correct. Yes, they told her, Peyton had been stabbed 19 times. As Stacy reeled, Detective Shelley Fisher came in to interview Peyton. Police had asked her a few questions already, but they needed to know more. Primarily, who had done this to her? If Peyton didn't come out of surgery alive, they wouldn't get a second chance. Peyton said it was her best friend, Morgan Geyser, and it wasn't just Morgan who was responsible. Anissa Wire was also involved. Now, with names to go on, officers wasted no time showing up at the Geyser's front door. They pounded. Just like Stacy Leitner, Angie Geyser, Morgan's mom, knew something was seriously wrong. When she opened the door, police pushed inside, asking for Morgan. Angie told them that her daughter was at the park with friends. But to her horror, they told her that Morgan was no longer there. As police searched the apartment, Angie kept asking for more details. All they would tell her was that one of the girls was hurt, only they wouldn't say which one. 
When their search of the apartment came up empty, police still refused to tell Angie what was going on. Worried and scared, she left the house with the officers, determined to find out what had happened to her daughter. By now, unbeknownst to everyone, Morgan and Anissa were in the local Walmart. There, they snuck into the bathrooms to wash the blood from their shirts. When they were as clean as they were going to get, they filled their water bottles and walked back out into the heat, determined to continue their journey to Slenderman's mansion. But the sun bore down on them, and they were both shaken by what they had done. Morgan insisted she knew where she was going, but the longer they walked, the more Anissa felt sure they were lost. All Anissa wanted to do was call her parents and go back home, but Morgan insisted they stay the course. After all, they didn't want to upset Slenderman now. Who knew what he might do to them if they let him down? And according to Anissa's interrogation, Morgan told her that if they went back now, they would be locked up in prison for decades. About this, Morgan was right. The police were closing in on them, and when they caught up, the girls' lives would never be the same. Up next, the girls tell their stories, and their friendship crumbles. Hi, everyone. When I'm not recording podcasts, I love listening to them. And for me, one of the best series out right now is the Spotify original from Parcast, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alistair Murden as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers. Dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. Medical Murders highlights a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On May 31st, 2014, 12-year-olds Anissa Wire and Morgan Geyser lured their friend, 12-year-old Peyton Leitner, into the woods. There, Morgan stabbed Peyton 19 times while Anissa watched. After leaving Peyton for dead, Morgan and Anissa took off, determined to get to Slenderman's mansion 300 miles away. Morgan and Anissa thought they would have a serious head start on the police. They were sure Peyton would die alone in the woods and that it would take days for police to recover her body. But little did they know that Peyton was actually alive and she had told the authorities all about what happened. Still in search of the missing girls, police went to Anissa's house. 
They told her mother, Christy Wire, that something was wrong and that Anissa was missing, but as they had with Angie Geyser, they refused to share any details. At this point, neither the Wires nor the Geysers suspected their daughters were responsible for any crimes. They just knew that their girls were missing, and they were desperate to find them. Worried and frantic, Christy Wire went through her daughter's belongings and discovered that Anissa had left her phone at Morgan's house during the sleepover. On it, she came across a disturbing note that Anissa had typed, clearly expecting someone to find. It read, This is my final wish to those who care. Do not grieve my absence, but remember me for who I was. I love and cherish you all and wouldn't do you harm. Written just two days earlier, the note indicated that Anissa was planning something, but Christie still wasn't sure what it was. To her, the note sounded an awful lot like a suicide letter, and she worried that her daughter was already gone. But Anissa was still walking with Morgan, trying to get to Nicolay Park. It was taking them much longer than they thought. By that afternoon, Morgan and Anissa had been walking for nearly five hours, but they hadn't even left Waukesha yet. Exhausted, they sat down on a grassy patch just off the interstate to catch their breath. But before they could get started again, a patrol car drove by. Spotting the girls, the officers jumped out of their vehicle, ready to put an end to the five-hour manhunt. They were prepared for the 12-year-olds to resist arrest, but the girls surrendered without a fight. Both of them were delirious from the heat and the trauma of stabbing their friend, who they believed they had killed. The officers quickly whisked the girls to the Waukesha police station, where detectives waited, desperate to get to the bottom of that morning's brutal attack. Everyone wanted to hear what the girls had to say and learn if Peyton's accusation could possibly be true. At the station, Morgan and Anissa were led into separate interrogation rooms, where a detective sat waiting for each of them. In Anissa's room, Detective Michelle Trussoni introduced herself. She was a gentlewoman with a motherly vibe, or at least that was the demeanor she projected to Anissa. She was kind and patient with the 12-year-old, carefully walking her through questions as she extracted the information she needed. But Morgan's detective, Tom Casey, took a different approach. He was straightforward and blunt with Morgan. When she gave vague answers, he pushed her for clarity. He also tried to coax her into revealing more than she wanted to, circling back to the same questions over and over. Both detectives read the girls their Miranda rights, telling them they could have access to a lawyer. But what they didn't tell them was that they could speak with their parents. Detective Trussoni didn't mention to Anissa that her parents, Christy and Bill, were in the police station lobby demanding to see their daughter. Had they been in the room with Anissa, she may have been much less talkative. But left on her own with the detective, she didn't hold back. In fact, she seemed almost relieved to tell the truth about what happened. She recounted every last detail about her friendship with Morgan, their obsession with Slenderman, and Peyton's brutal stabbing. 
and she was very clear on one point. She wasn't the one who stabbed Peyton. She admitted to helping plan the murder and said she believed that it was necessary in order to protect their families. But at the end of the day, it was Morgan who had gone through with it, not her. Meanwhile, Morgan refused to divulge many details at first and couched her answers with vague statements or disclaimers, and she made no mention of Slenderman. It wasn't until Detective Casey heard about Anissa's statements that he began to probe Morgan about Slenderman. When he did, Morgan admitted she knew of him, but that was all. Morgan likely felt protective of her Slenderman delusion, at least at first. According to philosophers Rachel Gunn and Lisa Bordelotti in their study for the Phenomenology and the Cognitive Sciences Journal, people suffering from delusions can hang on tightly to them, even when provided with significant evidence that the delusion is wrong. This is because, from the individual's perspective, a delusion can offer some psychological protection. For someone like Morgan, her belief in Slenderman seemed to also give her life meaning. It's possible that Morgan feared that if she admitted he was made up, she would lose her sense of purpose and the justification for her crime. So, while Anissa began to understand that Slenderman was just a fictional character, after undergoing hours of interrogation, Morgan held fast to her belief that he was real. Then she began to tell Casey more about the character and Anissa's role in the crime. As she opened up to Casey, Morgan shifted the blame to Anissa. Anissa was the one who'd introduced Morgan to Slenderman. Anissa was the one to say Peyton's death was necessary. Yes, Morgan admitted she had been afraid of what would happen if they didn't go through with the murder, but she put the blame for the stabbing squarely on Anissa, claiming that it had been her idea all along. Each girl was essentially saying the same thing about the other, but detectives seemed to believe Anissa's story more. For one, Anissa was more straightforward. She gave detailed answers, unlike Morgan, who was vague and meandering in her responses. Plus, Anissa showed remorse. She cried. When offered blankets, she wrapped herself up in them and seemed overwhelmed with grief. Morgan, on the other hand, showed no remorse. In fact, she showed no emotion at all, and that concerned detectives. When Detective Casey asked how she felt while stabbing Peyton, Morgan said it didn't feel like anything. It was like air. What she had done hardly seemed to register with her. Meanwhile, hours into her questioning, Anissa asked about Peyton's body. She had assumed she was dead and wondered how they had found her. But when Detective Trussoni told her that Peyton was alive and had been taken to the hospital, Anissa seemed grateful that she'd survived. When Morgan heard the same news, she had a different reaction. She was startled, enough to jump a bit in her seat and for her head to fly up from its gaze on the floor to Casey's face. Then she retreated back into her shell. Detective Casey watched her, curious. 
He wasn't sure if she was happy Peyton was still alive, scared of Slenderman's wrath for not completing the job, or perhaps felt something else entirely. But the one thing he knew for sure was that Morgan seemed psychologically troubled. This was more apparent when the interrogation was done. After questioning her, Detective Casey brought Morgan some food and left her alone in the room. She curled up in her chair and ate one fry at a time. She picked each one up slowly and ate them in tiny nibbles, taking forever to get through only a few of them. Then she wandered around the room, looking into the corners and under the table as if someone might be there with her. Satisfied she was alone, she sat back down and started to play with the fries, making them dance like dolls on the table. It was a deeply unsettling sight. Only hours before, she had stabbed her best friend and left her for dead. And now here she was, playing with her dinner as if nothing was wrong. But across town at Waukesha Memorial Hospital, Peyton Leitner was fighting for her life. One of her stab wounds had nearly severed a major artery near her heart. If Morgan had pressed the knife in just a millimeter deeper, Peyton would have been dead within minutes. Even with this lucky break, doctors weren't sure if they could save Peyton's life. She'd already lost a lot of blood, but at long last, they were able to close up all 19 wounds, and Peyton was wheeled into recovery. When Peyton woke up in her hospital bed hours later, she was weak from the surgery. She was also traumatized by that morning's attack. Yet there was one point on which she was crystal clear. She wanted justice. She thought Anissa and Morgan should go to prison for the rest of their lives. The Waukesha Police Department agreed. The girls had already confessed. Now it was just a matter of figuring out how to try them, as children who didn't know what they were doing, or as adults who murdered in cold blood. Up next, the controversial hearings of the Slender Man Stabbers. Now, back to the story. After stabbing 12-year-old Peyton Leitner and leaving her for dead in the woods, Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire made their way to Slender Man's mansion. But their journey was cut short when the police caught them and brought them in for questioning. While the two girls admitted to the attack, investigators probed them for hours to try to understand why they had done it. Eventually, after they were satisfied they had the full story, authorities decided the two girls were equally responsible for the stabbing. Morgan and Anissa were both charged with first-degree attempted homicide, though Anissa's charge was eventually reduced to second-degree, as she wasn't the one to wield the knife. Once charges were filed, the girls had a long wait to go to trial. Because of the serious nature of the crime, Morgan and Anissa were sent to Washington County Juvenile Detention Center. For most kids at the center, it was only a temporary layover. Generally, inmates were in and out of the center within a couple of months, if not weeks. But Anissa and Morgan would be stuck there for the next 
14 months. While they awaited trial, Anissa was determined to be a model inmate. She followed all of the detention center's rules and got along well with the other kids. But most importantly, she made it clear that she wanted nothing to do with Morgan. The interrogation seemed to have broken Morgan's spell over her for good. The girls were placed in separate living quarters and put in different classrooms, but occasionally the two girls passed each other in the halls as they moved from one place to the next. Whenever this happened, Anissa made sure to avert her eyes. She seemed terrified of getting swept up in Morgan's delusions again, and she was overwhelmed by guilt. Morgan, on the other hand, didn't express remorse for the stabbing. It was becoming clear to those around her that Morgan had a mental illness. Guards at the center consistently caught her talking to people in her cell who weren't there. Sometimes she pretended to be a cat, but it wasn't like normal child's play. She seemed to truly believe she was a cat and fully embodied the role. Other times, she would focus her attention on the ants in her cell, who she adopted as pets. She'd alternate between feeding them from her tray of food at mealtimes and taking them to the rec room to throw at other inmates. One day after Morgan's parents learned of their daughter's official diagnosis, they went to visit her. Her father, Matt, had finally realized that Morgan was schizophrenic, just like he was. He was worried about her hallucinations and wanted to talk about them with her. We don't know exactly what occurred during their meeting, but in the HBO documentary, Beware the Slender Man, Morgan's parents said that Morgan seemed to know her visions were hallucinations, and that's why she tried to hide them from others. Matt thought Morgan was afraid of losing her delusions because she considered them her friends. Clearly, Matt and Angie were concerned for their daughter's mental health. And they weren't the only ones who thought Morgan needed help. In the fall of 2014, detention center officials decided Morgan required more specialized care than they could offer. She was transferred to Winnebago Mental Health Institute, where she could live under 24-hour surveillance. There, doctors tried to get a handle on Morgan's mental state, Right away, they realized that she still posed a danger to others. When asked about Slenderman, she still insisted he was real, and she said that if he told her to stab someone else, she would feel compelled to do it. Eventually, Morgan was diagnosed with schizophrenia and oppositional defiant disorder. According to Johns Hopkins Medicine, children and adolescents with Oppositional Defiant Disorder, or ODD, often display vindictive tendencies, actively defy authority figures, and refuse to take responsibility for their actions. Between that and Morgan's schizophrenia, doctors and state officials worried about her likelihood to hurt someone else in the future. Eventually, Morgan was placed on antipsychotic medications. Meanwhile, Anissa was having her own psych evaluations in advance of the trial. One psychologist in her hearing determined that she had no characteristics of psychopathy or sociopathy, but she did have a diminished ability to determine what was real and not real. 
For these reasons and their young ages, the girls' lawyers argued they should be tried as children in juvenile court. That would ensure their release back into society when they turned 18, instead of having the actions they took as 12-year-olds define the rest of their lives. Judge Michael Bowren disagreed. For him, the crime was too severe for them to be tried as juveniles. After all, it was a miracle that Peyton had survived. Morgan and Anissa had committed the crime with every intention of killing her. So on August 10, 2015, over a year after the attempt on Peyton's life, Judge Bowren ruled that both Morgan and Anissa would be tried as adults. That meant they could be sentenced to up to 65 years in prison. The rabid press coverage continued, as this verdict meant that news sources were finally allowed to show the girls' faces in court. Reporters and armchair detectives alike dug through the girls' family histories for any salacious material. Parents especially were fascinated by the case and wanted to know exactly how it had happened and how they could avoid something like it with their own children. The Wires and the Geysers, however, watched helplessly as their families were scrutinized, and they could offer little comfort to the girls who were still in the care of the state. At the end of each day in court, Anissa went back to the juvenile detention center and Morgan was sent to the state hospital. Two years dragged by while the hearings progressed, but despite the lengthy proceedings and national interest, the case itself was straightforward. Both girls had confessed, after all, and the victim was alive to tell her story. No one doubted that Morgan and Anissa were the culprits. The only question was how a jury would rule if the case went to trial, given the mental states and ages of both girls. Because of this, both Morgan and Anissa pleaded not guilty by reason of mental illness. But before their trials could begin, they changed their minds. They both decided to plead guilty in return for doing their time at psychiatric facilities instead of prison. There was some logic to this. If they were sent to hospitals instead of prison and their symptoms disappeared, they could be released sooner than whatever length of time the judge ordered them to serve in jail. So in December 2017, three and a half years after the crime, Anissa was found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. The judge sentenced her to 25 years in a mental health institution. Morgan's sentencing came two months later in February of 2018. As the one who had stabbed Peyton, she pleaded guilty to attempted first-degree intentional homicide. In the courtroom, she tearfully apologized to Peyton and her family. Morgan's lawyers argued that Morgan had been delusional as a result of schizophrenia at the time of the crime, but that she no longer showed dangerous symptoms. Therefore, she should have a shorter commitment in a less restrictive facility. After all, schizophrenia itself doesn't make an individual dangerous to the world. 
But the prosecution's doctor testified that Morgan still displayed delusions that could lead her to hurt someone in the future. He said that Morgan had described hearing voices recently and that she was still very much a danger to the public. Judge Bowren agreed. He sentenced Morgan to 40 years in an institution. To the judge, it was a matter of public safety. He gave a long sentence in case Morgan and Anissa's symptoms persisted. If they did, they would be safely tucked away in the hospital. If, however, they subsided, they could be released early. So lawyers for both Morgan and Anissa promised they would be petitioning for their client's release as often as every six months, as allowed by Wisconsin law. A year later, in 2019, Morgan's lawyer filed an appeal to overturn her verdict. The argument was two-pronged. First, he said she shouldn't have been tried as an adult in the first place. Second, he said that Morgan should have had an adult or lawyer present when she first spoke to Detective Casey. Because she didn't, the statements she made in her confession should have been thrown out. In 2020, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals denied her lawyer's petition, but he appealed once more to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. They have yet to decide if they'll hear the case. Since that fateful day in May 2014, Peyton Leitner has made a full recovery. She's a smart, vibrant, and kind 18-year-old, but she will always carry the scars, both mental and physical, from that morning in the park when her best friend stabbed her. Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire, both now 18, are currently serving their time in their respective psychiatric hospitals. If they both complete their full sentences, Anissa will be released at age 40 and Morgan at age 55. But they may be released early if their symptoms subside and they're no longer deemed a danger to themselves or others. Many people point to this case as an example of the dangers of the internet, but perhaps it's more accurate to warn about the dangers of a good story, especially one that isn't true. When we lose the ability to tell the difference between what's real and what's made up, chaos ensues. Instead of casting blame on any one person, it seems more important to look at the slender man stabbing as a cautionary tale of what can happen when fact and fiction become just a little too intertwined, and why being able to tell the difference can be a matter of life and death. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Anissa Wire and Morgan Geyser, amongst the many sources we used, we found Beware the Slender Man, an HBO documentary extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time.
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 